Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Mission Possible. As Christians, we are called to be on mission, longing and working to see God known and worshipped by people from every culture, from our own city to the ends of the earth. Today I'm going to be uh, teaching from Romans chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to be starting a new series called Mission Possible. Uh, you just heard the uh, theme music and all that from the old Mission Impossible TV series that uh, Stephanie had put together. We're going to be looking through the whole fall at the mission of the church. We begin today looking at the heartbeat of missions, which is worship. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. The verse will be up here on the screen. You can follow along. Everything you need will be up on the screen, but you can also follow along in your Bibles, uh, which I encourage you to do. Hear now the word of the living God. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. If you remember the old uh, Mission Impossible, you, you might be, uh, for, for everybody here is old enough to remember the movie series that is still going on, you may be old enough to remember they did a TV series in the 1990s, which was actually a reboot, I've heard, from a TV show in the 1960s. Not that I would remember the one from the 1960s. Um, but you remember the, the theme behind that show was that every week there was some impossible mission that would be given. In the 1960s, there were these things called cassette tapes. Turn, turn to somebody who's older and they'll explain what those are to you. But the guy would play it and it would tell him what the mission was going to be. And, you know, it was it, your mission should you choose to accept it is some incredibly impossible thing. Uh, and then the tape would be destroyed at the end. They've now got different technology that does it. But it's always this impossible task, except for, of course, in the old days, it was Jim, and in the new days, it's Ethan. They always accomplish the task. He and the team do what seems to be impossible and pull it off. Well, the church has been given a mission, which we're going to be unfolding in the fall here, which is that we are to take the gospel to every people group on the planet, from here to the farthest corners of the earth, we are to reach out with the good news of who Jesus Christ is and give everyone a chance to hear and respond to the gospel. Uh, that's what we're called to do. And I might say that might look impossible. Uh, however, we're going to see that unlike in the TV show where the reason it's not actually impossible is because these people are somehow superhuman and do these things that no human being could pull off, it seems like. Thankfully, that's not how our mission is going to get accomplished. Uh, it's not based on you and I doing stupendous things. It's based on the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel. And so we're going to begin today by starting to unpack what is our mission, and we're going to look throughout this series at that, and is it really possible in today's world for us to accomplish this mission? So let's dive into our text, and today we start with the heartbeat of missions. This is the fuel that will fire everything else that we will have to say. Now, in our text, Paul's giving his own call, his own mission. He tells us in Romans 1.5 that we have received grace and apostleship, Paul tells us. So he's given this grace and apostleship, which is Paul's call. And really, 
when Paul uses this term, he does mean, first off, that I receive grace, which is the gospel. I've responded to Jesus by the gospel, and we receive that. But Paul also means the grace of apostleship. We know, for example, he uses the same kind of language in 1 Peter, uh, I mean in Ephesians 4. And in 1 Peter 4, Peter uses the same language where grace refers to our spiritual gift and the ministry God has given us. It's not just the grace that we are now believers, but rather it's grace the way the Holy Spirit works in us to fulfill a particular call. And so Paul's call was that you are an apostle, which is a word that meant just one who was sent forth with a task or a mission. And he was an apostle to take the gospel so that others might hear and believe. Now, you and I are not apostles in the strict sense that Paul was, but we are sent ones, and we have received grace, and we are called by God to mission just like Paul is. And we're going to, again, be unpacking this throughout the series today. I'm just kind of introducing that part. And so we've got the same kind of a call, which means we're sent to take the gospel out to others. Now, notice Paul also tells us here's the scope of what that call is, and the scope includes, he says in in verse 5, to call people from among all the Gentiles. So Paul has a mission to call people from among the Gentiles. Now, this is a pretty unusual call for Paul, um, for reasons I'll explain in just a moment, because notice the the word Gentiles there literally is the word ethnesin in Greek, And if you just hear that word, ethnesin, what word do we get out of that? Ethnic. That's all it means. It's every ethnic group. So when it says Gentiles, according to Jews, there were only two groups, Jews and everybody else. It didn't matter who else you were, you fit into the everybody else. And Paul said, I, the Jew, Paul, am sent to the everybody else. The Gentiles are those who were not part of God's covenant people, and they were spread throughout the earth. And this is an interesting call for Paul I want you to think about because Paul, you remember, was upset with Christians. He was persecuting the church, and the reason he did so, he tells us in Philippians 3, is I was a Jew of Jews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was obedient to the law. I kept the law, and the law said the Gentiles were out there. I wanted nothing to do with them. And then Jesus calls him and says, well... Those people you wanted nothing to do with, I am now sending you to them. That is your call. The mission is not that we are just to encourage one another, stay in our holy huddle, nor is it that we are to reach out to those who are like us. But rather, we are to go after anyone who is outside of God's covenant people. It does not matter what they look like, where they are at, what their culture is, what their politics are, what their language is, the music they like, the way they dress, none of that enters into the equation. If you are someone who has not embraced the gospel, then we are on mission towards you, okay? And you can't stress enough that Paul is sent to the very ones that he had despised, okay? The church is called. There is much teaching today that says how you build a church is you go after one group of people where everybody looks the same, everybody's got the same kind of socioeconomic background, the same education level. And let me tell you, that system actually works. 
Because particularly Americans, we like to congregate in our own little group. There's only one little problem with it. It's radically unbiblical. That's not what the church looks like. We're not supposed to be that way. And so the call is to go after anyone who has not yet embraced the gospel, and we don't break it down to we're after those who are like us. Thirdly, Paul says, here's the goal of how that gospel is going to work. The goal is that it's going to produce the obedience that comes from faith. Notice he says we've got grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. That's what the goal of what we're after. This is not just a head knowledge. Our mission is not to make sure people have heard and can answer a three-question test on what the gospel is. Our mission is we want to see true faith birthed in the hearts of the people. Now, only God can do that, but that's we're going to keep pressing with the mission until we see people respond in that way. And notice what Paul is saying here. The obedience that he's looking for comes from faith, is how the NIV is translated to Greek, and it's a good translation here. It's a good understanding. A biblical response of faith always produces obedience to God. Always. A faith that does not produce obedience is not biblical faith. And you see that not only in this little verse here, Paul explains this throughout his gospel. He's going to spend a couple of chapters later in the book of Romans saying, we died to sin. We can't, we can't live that way any longer. The Holy Spirit is producing obedience to the law. James puts it by saying, faith without works is dead. Because it's not that we're saved by works. We're not. Our works have nothing to do with our justification before God. But faith produces works. Faith produces obedience. And so I'm using the word today, worship, and I'm not using it just in the narrow sense that we sometimes do today of the singing part of a meeting or even just the meeting where we gather together. Those are both important parts. But worship, biblically, the full-orbed idea is that worship is a response of faith to the gospel that produces obedience in the life of the believer. And anything less than that is not worship. You look in the Scripture over and over again, and God says, well, you're doing all the right motions, you're saying the right things, but then you leave the temple in the Old Testament, you go out, and you're acting just like you did before you became part of my covenant people. You can't do that. And so Paul says, look, I'm given this ministry, and the ministry is to go after everybody who's outside the covenant people, and I am speaking to them and laboring and praying that they would respond to the gospel in faith, which would produce a life of worship from which obedience springs, and they begin to obey God and his word. That's the mission Paul's got, and it's actually the mission we have in the church, and we're going to kind of unpack this in the time ahead. Now, what I want us to notice for the rest of today is what fuels that mission. And what fuels the mission, the heartbeat of the mission is the sake of Jesus, Jesus' namesake. Notice he tells us in verse 5 there, the part we kind of skipped over at the beginning, through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. All of this is for his name's sake. Ministry, 
like everything else we do, is to be for the glory of God. It is all to be for the sake of the name of God. Now notice here how strong this is. Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, is writing to the Roman church, which is a Gentile church, and he's trying to give a defense of his ministry and why he does it. And he does not say, I do this because I love you Gentiles so much. He does not say that I had compassion because you were perishing without the gospel. All of that's true, and he will get to it in chapter 9. But prior to that, Paul says, here's the first reason I do this. It's for the sake of the name. You all should worship Jesus, and it is a crime when you or anyone else are not worshiping him, and therefore I go. Thomas Schreiner Uh, a good biblical scholar, and writing a commentary on this verse says this, the ultimate reason for a mission to the Gentiles was not the salvation of the Gentiles, but the proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ. What was fundamental for Paul was the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. So why are you and I on mission? Why do we spend time and energy and money and pray every week for God's word to go forth around the nations. The first reason is we want Jesus' name to be proclaimed, we want his fame to grow, and we want him to be worshipped in every single people group on the planet. That is the first reason. And if that is not our foundational reason, we are being radically unbiblical. Now, this idea ties together all of Scripture. The basis for everything we do is the glory of God. So it's not just this verse that says this. It's all over Scripture. Let me show you just a couple of others. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I mentioned last week that in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, Paul was asked the question, do you eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? And he gives this three, four-chapter answer that runs chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, ending with the Lord's Supper. But here at uh, chapter 10, verse 31, he kind of comes to a conclusion to one major part of the argument. He says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Paul says, if you want to know whether you should eat this piece of meat, here's the question, what brings glory to God. That is always the question that you ask. The glory of God is the foundation for everything we do. In fact, if anything is done with an eye to something else first, as being primary, it is sinful, no matter what the other motivation is. If I love my wife with the motivation that I just love her and I want to care for her, that's good. But if it's primary, it's sinful. What should be my first motivation for loving my wife? Glory to God. I want God to be glorified. I want people to see this is how Christ loves the church, and I'm behaving in the same manner. Now, is it good for me to love my wife because I want her to be happy? Yes, as long as that is secondary. If it is primary, there's another word for it. It's called idolatry. You hear me? We just did a baby dedication. I wanted desperately for all four of my children to walk with Jesus because, you know, I don't want them in hell. If that's my primary motivation for wanting them to walk with Jesus, do you understand that that's sinful? 
even that. My first motivation is I want you four to glorify Jesus because every atom in this universe should sing his praise. And I don't want you to be among those who are not. Do you understand that? This is not the way the church oftentimes thinks. We begin our catechism following the Westminster Catechism with the most famous catechism question in the English language. Why did God make humans? What's the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why he did it. That's why we're here. That's why every human being is here. Now, this is radically different than the way our culture is. Even the church, we are man-centered. It's got to be about me, except for it's not. That's how we got in trouble. That's what plucking the fruit was about, okay? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus, first and foremost. Let me show you some other verses. Psalm 86, verses 8 to 10 says the same thing. The psalmist writes, Among the gods there is no one like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. This is glory to God. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. See, the nations are going to come, and it's not for the good of the nations. It's so that your name might be glorified. Verse 10, for, here's why this is going to happen. For you are great and do marvelous deeds, and you alone are God. Why do we want the nations to worship him? So that he gets glory because he's great. He's worthy of glory. That has to be the primary motivation. Even our mission of reaching out, the reason we are doing evangelism, the reason we are involved in mission here in the farthest corners of the earth is first about God's glory. First and foremost, always about the glory of God. Now, let me give a couple of quotes that uh, some theologians who say this, and I want to point out before I start, both of the guys I'm about to quote, John Piper and George Burwer, are major forces in missions around the earth. John Piper for years was the pastor, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church up in Minneapolis. They are the only church I'm personally aware of that has a higher portion of their income goes to missions than this congregation. So they are serious. At one point, they were one-third of every dollar came in went to missions work. So don't hear that this is a guy making excuses for not being involved in missions. Not the case at all. The other guy, George Burwer, is the founder and head of Operation Mobilization, which for years was the only group reaching into the Muslim world. And many people were suffering and paying a price. But I want you to hear their quotes on why we do missions. Piper says this, and this is in a book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. This is in a book on missions, okay? And do you hear what he's saying? If I make, if I make even the mission of reaching the lost with the gospel 
central, what I've actually done is made man the center rather than God. And all you have to do is ask yourself if I'm doing that. Anytime we put man in the center, we are in trouble. We have radically gotten ourselves off course. George Verwer, um, in a book on counting the cost for missions, says this, I can honestly share with you that my first burden is not world evangelism, a strange thing for a guy who devoted his entire life to world evangelism, but the glory of God. One of the reasons that we of Operation Mobilization have been able to put men in the Muslim world and keep them there 5, 10, or even 15 years is because as we went to the Muslim world 20 years ago, our first burden was not the conversion of Muslims or the establishing of the church in the Muslim world, but the glory of God. It's impossible for us to predict how much fruit there will be. Our first burden is the glory of God. Therefore, we obey Him and we go forth to lay down our lives in witness. You know, he says, he says, I don't know when I go into a Muslim land how much fruit I'm going to see, but I know this, I'll be proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many people will turn to Christ, but I know that the gospel will be accurately proclaimed and there will be those who will respond and Jesus will have more followers than he had before I went. And therefore, I go, whatever the cost. Now, this is important, and I bring this up today at the beginning. We're going to cover this later, but one of the great problems we have in the Western church is we believe the mission is going to go forth without cost. We're all for the mission as long as it doesn't cost. But there's no way for it to go forth without cost. It won't. To be involved in mission is to be paying a price. There is no other way. And the only thing that will keep us on mission when that price gets steep is the glory of God. And that I long for him to be worshipped. And he is not being worshipped from people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. In fact, he's not being worshipped by my neighbor right out here in Annapolis. That's what will keep me on mission. And so, now you may be sitting here and saying, what about our concern for people? What about all the suffering that goes on in the world? Should not the church be concerned about that? The answer is yes, and we're going to get to that next week. But it is secondary, not primary. And if we don't understand this, the whole Scripture starts to not make sense. You can think about it not only from the verses that I've talked about, but remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in all the Scripture? What's his answer? Love God with how much of you? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, everything in you. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he said, and then I'll give you a second one. The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. But notice which is the primary commandment. Love God. That's the foundation. And out of that, you love your neighbor. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, what are the first part of the commandments about? They're all about loving God. They're all about worshiping God. What are the second part of the commandments about? How I treat my neighbor as one who has worshiped God correctly. It is always that the worship of God is primary. And it's critical to understand if, if we see this, it is not going to reduce mission. It's going to fuel it. In fact, the reason that the church in the West is not on mission the way we are called 
is because we have put ourselves at the center rather than God. The reason we are not on mission is simply we don't love Jesus as much as we're supposed to. Now, I know I'm meddling a little bit here, but understand that. This is why we're not concerned for the lost the way we ought to be. It's not that we're lacking information. It's I'm not as passionate about Jesus as I ought to be. John Stott, uh, who's now gone to be with the Lord, he was a great pastor in England and a leading force for missions again in the world. All of these folks devoted their lives to mission. He wrote uh, a, a work called Our Guilty Silence, and he said this. Paul writes that his mission to all the nations is for the sake of his name, Romans 1.5, our text. Even love for the commands of Christ and love for the lost sheep of Christ are subordinate to and dependent upon this name for the love, this love for the name of Christ. Is this not the cause of our guilty silence? We do not speak for Christ because we do not so love his name that we cannot bear to see him unacknowledged or unadored. If only our eyes were open to see his glory, and if only we felt wounded by the shame of his public humiliation among men, we should not be able to remain silent. I would rather it be, tell me I have too much fear of man. I would rather it be, tell me I'm too distracted. But Stott's right. You know why I'm not on mission the way I ought to be? Because my love for Jesus is not as white hot as it ought to be. And that's it. Because that underlies everything else. And we don't like that. I want to get out from under that. Trust me. And again, I've got, I've got a master's degree in this, so I can theologize my way around anything. Except at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit still says, but that's not true. If you were as concerned about the glory of my name as you said you were, then your life would be consumed with mission because you would want my name to receive the glory that it is due. So, how do we apply the word? What is, what is this thing of mission? And again, this is foundational for the rest of the series. First question for us as we go on mission is, do I see the glory of God as the ultimate good in the universe? It's about his glory. Make no mistake, again, this is very counter-cultural. And the reason it is, is it's rooted all the way back in the fall. In the fall, we were the second highest thing in all of creation. The only thing that bore the image of God. And the fall is us saying Second highest is not high enough. It's not good enough. So we want to be the center. It's not enough to be the image of the one who is the center. We want to be the center. That's exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. And then that has come down as our world throughout history is the increasing rejection of God as ultimate and us finding ourselves or something else to be ultimate. And this infects the modern Western church 
to a degree that has not been seen before. We place ourselves at the center. It is about us. In a thousand different ways, we talk about it. We even talk about the best way to try and reach out to people is to have seeker-sensitive worship. Well, let me ask you the question, who's the seeker in worship? The Scripture tells us none of us are seeking after Him. He's seeking after worship. The Father seeks worshipers. Who is the audience in worship? God is. Whether you worshiped or did not worship this morning as we have gathered, you have done it before God. That's who I have worshiped before or not worshiped before. But we don't even think in those terms. We think that it is about us. And we are concerned about what makes us happy, what keeps us at the center, rather than what makes God happy and what keeps God at the center. And that's in the church, evangelical Bible-believing church. And here's the tragedy. When we do that, the outcome of that is that God shrinks in our eyes. He doesn't actually shrink, but he looks smaller to us. And this is why mission begins here. Mission begins with God's glory because when God shrinks in our eyes, the mission seems impossible and we increasingly compromise our call. It can't be that because that seems too hard. That looks too difficult. There is too much of price to be paid. And after all, I have to figure out how to do this in my own strength because, well, after all, God's not really that great. He's really fairly small. What other outcome could we have when the center of everything, even our worship, has been me? And God is basically my errand boy and my servant. And we write books that tell us how to basically get God to do what we want God to do rather than books telling us how to do what God's telling us to do. How could it be anything other than that God shrinks in our eyes? So, this first question is, do I see that Scripture is crystal clear that God's glory is ultimate? Whatever is done is about the glory of God. Do I see that any other view actually makes nonsense of the entire biblical story and totally undermines the mission God has given us? You know why the gospel seems so inconsequential in our culture? It's because what we've actually produced is a, an aberration of it that we proclaim to people about how your life is okay, but if you had a little Jesus, it would be a little bit better. Rather than you're walking dead. You don't even have life. You don't even understand what life is about. That's a very different message. And it rests so inconsequentially upon the church and therefore upon those whom we are called to be in mission with that it makes nonsense of the Scripture. And then they just sit there and say, this whole message doesn't even make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense because when we take God out of the center and put ourselves in the center, the whole Bible goes out of focus. But if He's in the center and everything else, everything else is peripheral, it all comes into focus. Do I see that? Then the obvious second question is, is that the way I'm living? Do I value the worship of God more than anything else? Is obedience springing from faith more important to me than anything else? We're not just talking about had knowledge, that I acknowledge and say, well, yeah, you know, 
if God's the God of the Bible, then of course he's the most important. Talking about heart experience. What actually stirs in my heart? If we don't cherish the worship of God above everything else, we cannot be on mission. We will not stay on mission if we don't cherish the worship of God above everything else. Let me give you another great quote from John Piper. In missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missions begins and ends in worship. Where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. So, do I cherish the worship of God? When I look at my family member, my coworker, my neighbor, or I see a picture, even, I'll really meddle here for a minute, I see a picture of that man in ISIS. Is my first thought something other than that person needs to be a worshiper of Jesus? And I'm on mission to see that they hear that. Because if it is, whatever other that first thought is, it's idolatry. Whatever that other first thought is, it's sinful at its core. So, do I, do I have that view? What else competes with God for my ultimate passion? And I'm not even going to ask if anything else does, because the story of our life is a constant series of things competing with God for my ultimate passion. So what else right now competes with God for my ultimate passion? Uh, what do I cherish more than God. And if you're deceiving yourself right now and thinking nothing, <laughs> you really need to let the Word of God sink in. Because that's just simply not the case. What is it? Is it money? If everything you had was lost, like Job, moment, would your worship of God be less? Is it power? big one, killing the church here in America. We want power more than we want Jesus being worshipped, to be honest, more than we want the gospel to prosper. Is it prestige? I worry about what somebody's going to think of me if I look like a Jesus freak by talking to them about the gospel right now. That would hurt my reputation, and I cherish that more than worship of his name. Is it security? I'm willing to see mission go forward, but, you know, i got to make sure that I'm secure. I'm protected. I'm safe. My financial position into the future is secure because that's the ultimate biblical value, right? Is it reputation? Is it family? You can keep adding to the list. What competes with God for my ultimate that's the challenge as we begin this series. You know, the fuse is lit, the music is running, 
But here's the challenge for I. It's not up to you and I to have these superhuman skills to accomplish this mission. That's good news. The Holy Spirit is going to be on mission in doing this. But here's where our role comes in. I'm more passionate for the glory of his name than I am anything else. And you don't have to have superhuman skills to do that. We just need to tear down our other idols. That's what we have to do. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table. And at this table, we're going to be challenged again, even as we were last week, to cherish God above everything. That we are saying he is our very food. He is our very sustenance. He is our very life. The, the scripture that Scott began with this morning where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You just pick that metaphor. He, he's not, you know, I'm the uh, cheesecake with cherry on top at the end of meal of life. I'm it. I'm how you are sustained and how you live. So we're going to come to the table specifically for that and asking ourselves this question, what is it that's competing? What is it that prevents me from being so passionate about Jesus and his worship, that if I come across anything in this universe that's not worshiping him, my heart breaks and says, how could it be that this person whom God has made in his image is living and worshiping other things? Oh, God, how can you be without this worship that you are so what is it that prevents me from saying that? I encourage you to think about that as we pass the elements out. And then we'll confess that and we'll ask God to fuel us for mission. If you are here as a visitor, and I know we have a number of visitors today, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church to come to this table. You do have to believe the gospel, which means that God is central, that God has made us, that the worship he was due, we rejected, we went our own way, we turned away from him, both in Adam and by our own volition, but that God, through Jesus Christ, is offered grace and mercy to us. Jesus has paid for us, has opened the door for us, and we may freely come in, not by our works, but by embracing the gospel. If you believe that, and you have no other hope, there's no plan B, it's not Jesus plus Jesus. That's it, period. If you believe that, we encourage you to participate in the table. If you don't believe that, then we put something else at the center, and you should let the table pass because this table is for those who are in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. So let's come to the Lord's table. For what I received from the Lord Jesus I pass on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning we come to you and we thank you 
for your gift and your grace. Father, we thank you that you are the center of the universe. And Lord, we come this morning considering before your Holy Spirit, and we invite your Spirit to prompt in our hearts, Lord, what do we cherish more than you, your name, your glory? Father, show us and enable us by your Spirit and your Word to repent and to embrace you as the center of all. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Did you get the elements? Please hold on to them, and then we will take them together in just a couple moments. Lord Jesus, as we take this bread this morning that represents your body, which was broken for us, we begin with humble confession. Lord, we have no right to hold this bread because we have forsaken all such right by our disobedience, by falling so far short. And Lord, we even confess that we have continued to do so to this very day. And yet we hold this bread in faith, for you were broken for us. You were crushed for our sins and our iniquities. You did so willingly. No one took your life from you. You willingly laid it down and you took it up again. And you did all of this for us and for our salvation. And Lord, this morning, in taking this bread, we are proclaiming that in the midst of a world that is so man-centered, in the midst of a world that wants to put ourselves at the center, we put you at the center where you belong. We recognize that's where you actually are. We humbly confess our sins, and we say thanks be to God that Jesus Christ has been offered for us. Thanks be to God that through the gospel we receive forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future, because greater is the grace and mercy of God than all of our sin. Take and eat. And Lord Jesus, we lift up this cup of the new covenant in your blood, and we are so grateful that your blood is powerful to cleanse us from all of our sins. And Lord, we confess that even as your covenant people, those who have tasted and seen that you are good, those who have been uh, regenerated by the power of your Holy Spirit and begun to walk with you, Father, we still fall short. We still find ourselves drawn to other things and cherishing other things more. But Lord, we are grateful that the blood of Jesus has secured the covenant once and for all, that the blood of Jesus is greater than all of our foul sin, and that the blood of Jesus cleanses and purifies and puts away not only the penalty, but even breaks the back of the power of sin. And so, Lord, as we are at your table this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use this sacrament, that we would not only be cleansed from sin's penalty, but from its power. Lord, we don't want to be idolaters. Lord, we don't want to live as if something else is central. We don't want to do the folly of cherishing something more. Lord, we want to see you as you are, and we want to humbly bow and worship you, and we want to cherish you above all things. For you are good, and you are life, and you have redeemed us through the gospel of Christ. 
So, Lord, we hold up this cup of thanksgiving and we say thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ that has saved and cleansed and keeps us to the end. Take and eat. Lord, we thank you this morning that you love us enough to reveal to us who you are. Father, sin in all of its forms, idolatry in all of its modes is destructive to who we are. For we were made to bear your image. So, Lord, we are grateful for you speaking to us this day. And, Lord, we are grateful, as always, that who you are is a gracious and compassionate God, full of grace and mercy towards those of us whom you have made and whom you have called in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit with us as we go forth? And, Lord, we begin mission this week by saying, Lord, would we be first looking to you? Would we be first worshipers? Would we be first those who cherish you above all else so that we might with joy turn and commend you to the people around us who perish apart from your gospel and your grace? We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And as we stand, we're going to conclude with the word of benediction. And this is out of the book of Revelation. And I encourage you to receive God's blessing in his word as his priest, who are first and foremost looking to him. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from his spirit and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be priests and a kingdom to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Go forth in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.